Social distancing, frequent hand washing, remote work and shelter in place are new norms during the COVID-19 pandemic. Ideas that may be ghosts of algebra class past, such as exponential growth and doubling times of confirmed cases are now subjects of daily discussion. One common feature of daily reports are charts and graphs designed to convey information of this worldwide epidemic and to explain proposed control measures. Understanding and evaluating coronavirus charts is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelist Richard Campbell, former chair of Media Journalism and Film, Rosemary Pennington is away today. Our guest on our first ever Stats and Stories Home Edition is Amanda McCulloch. McCulloch is Senior Data Visualization Lead at Excella and co-organizer of Data Visualization DC. Thank you so much for being here today, Amanda. Thanks, John. Amanda, I, th I thought your Fast Company article, A Complete Guide to Coronavirus Charts, Be Informed, Not Terrified, was great. What inspired you to write this article? So the, the article was actually originally written for data visualization practitioners and framed quite differently. Uh, we saw that early on in the coronavirus epidemic that there was a lot of information and data being made publicly available about the new cases that were emerging every day, and in some case being tracked in more of an hour by hour basis. Uh, that was in part because of the work that the John Hopkins University did to create an early COVID-19 tracking dashboard and make the underlying data publicly accessible through their GitHub repository. Because that data was so available, we saw a lot of people from the data science and data visualization fields jumping in and wanting to analyze and build their own charts and graphs of that data and information. And exploring data can be really valuable for enabling your own understanding, but it's challenging in this kind of global pandemic environment because there's so much subject matter expertise from public health and biostatistics and epidemiology that we really need to understand to actually wrap some context around that data. There's a ton of uncertainty in those numbers. There are calculations that you can run, like case fatality rates in the early days, but really should you when we really have uncertain denominators or uncertain numbers of cases depending on how many people are being tested. And so the original the article actually started as and was published as 10 considerations before you publish another chart about COVID-19 designed for the data visualization community, and then later adapted into the post that you saw in Fast Company that reframed some of those same points and kind of same key learnings but for a broader audience who are really consuming all of the charts and graphs that are saturating the media right now. Amanda, you were talking there about uncertainty, and one of the things that we, 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 we know we're all struggling with this is a lot of us want more certainty at a time when it's kind of early on in this contagion. A lot of journalists uh, are asking questions that kind of jump out of head of everything. When are we gonna know this? When are we gonna know that? Do you have any advice for journalists in wrestling with the whole question of uncertainty? I've learned over time, this is something that statisticians wrestle with all the time. Journalists seem to be a little less patient about this and we really need that kind of patience now, I think. I think that patience is really important because of the danger of misinformation, right? One of the challenges that we're facing as we look at coronavirus in the U.S. is the ways in which the different pieces of technical information and data are translated into headlines by different news outlets. 
Something top of mind that I've been talking about with some of my colleagues is about a CDC report that was used to drive a headline that featured in the New York Times that said younger adults make up a big proportion of coronavirus hospitalizations in the U.S. And the subtitle on that headline said something to the effect of new CDC data shows that nearly 40 percent of patients sick enough to be hospitalized were aged 20 to 54. Now, that sounds like a really startling and alarming headline, but when you dig into the actual source report, there's a big question about how accurate that 40% number really is. If you go to the source report from CDC, you'll find that the number of cases that they had as of March 16th was around 4,226 cases reported. Of those, only 2,449 of those cases actually had age information known, which means that we're already limiting our sample down to 58% of the U.S. cases. And segmenting that further, there were only 508 cases out of that 4,200 plus that actually had both known age and hospitalization status. So that's 12% of total cases that we're looking at that actually had this outcome variable of interest. Yet somehow this headline around 40% of patients sick enough to be hospitalized were in this younger age group, age 20 to 54, is what hit the headlines. And what's challenging when we look at this is that this report that the CDC put out is primarily done for technical audiences. Seldom do they have this level of intense scrutiny and interest in the data that they're putting out on a daily or hourly basis. And so I think we have to have a little bit of empathy for our CDC colleagues who are being demanded to put out data as fast as they can. But sometimes that data gets completely cherry picked for headlines that go ahead and and get people to click. When we look back at that CDC report, their key takeaway from this about this preliminary report was around the fact that COVID-19 can result in severe disease, including hospitalization, and everyone can take action, such as social distancing. There was no overstatement or even any calculation stating that 40% of Uh, all hospitalizations were among young people. And so I think we have to be careful about kind of what information we put in headlines and how we uh, translate these technical numbers into information that people can make sense of. Both uh, giving honest information, uh, it's important for everyone to understand that this is everyone's challenge and problem, but also not information that misleads people or causes undue panic. Yeah, the... the, uh... One of the the point that you made about complex metrics, even though methodologically simple, as being really a a, a tough thing to discuss. So you you talked about case data being deceptively complex. Can you talk a little bit about that complexity? Sure. So as a person who has a background both in public health and data, uh, when we look at how we actually track information about an emerging epidemic, the data that we have available about cases is the best that we know, right? When you start to look at the modifying words on cases, even though we may refer to it that way, you're looking at things like confirmed cases. And those confirmed cases could be cases that have been laboratory confirmed by a CDC laboratory. At a lower level, those confirmed cases could include cases that Um, we usually would call presumptive positive cases in the CDC reporting, that then are cases that were confirmed in a local laboratory but not validated at a CDC laboratory. You can start to see the complexity as you break down all these different kinds of cases that we have out there. We have the added challenge that without robust widespread testing, we don't have a really clear denominator on how many cases we even have 
in the US or some other countries. A country that's done a lot more widespread testing like South Korea has done a lot more work to actually capture a more accurate denominator and actually have a better understanding of the share of their population who were infected. Uh, and so there are a lot of challenges in how we quantify that case information. And we're seeing that now with the public health recommendations being put out there that if you are not going to have a materially different experience in terms of the treatment from the medical system, that you may not qualify to be tested, even if you show a lot of the symptoms of COVID-19. So it's gonna be hard to actually ever have until we have some way of quantifying who was infected previously through other kinds of tests, it'll be really difficult to have a really accurate denominator for what the total case volume was. Amanda, you talked in your article that John cited at the beginning from Fast Company about the story or the person behind each data point. This is one of the considerations that you talk about in that article. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I think that there are two things to consider when we think about the people behind those data and those numbers. Um, and I think that's becoming much more personal to us as we see this epidemic unfold here in the U.S. I think on one side, we have to think about all the people who are part of these high risk groups and think about the language that we use as we create our data visualizations and the text and the words and the content that wraps around them that recognizes that people who are in high risk groups uh, are also people too. And how would they feel reading about or seeing the kind of content we're putting out? Modifying words like only the blank group are high risk for this disease, I think is really othering and doesn't recognize that this is a shared burden that we all face, or a shared challenge that we all face in terms of uh, how we respond and the actions we each can take to make a difference. Um, I think also it's really important to try to better help people understand the, how the actions of any one individual person can have a huge ripple effect with a disease as infectious as COVID-19, especially when you can be asymptomatic, not know that you're sick, and still be spreading virus, which is what one of our big challenges is, right, with COVID-19, is that you may not be intentionally spreading the virus, but the choices you're making about going about your everyday life or going to large mass gatherings when they were still happening can have a material impact. And one story I think that does an exceptional job of trying to put that person at the center and individual choices at the center of the COVID-19 story and the data is a story from Reuters called the Korean Clusters that actually walks through and visualizes um, the various contact tracing that the team in South Korea did to identify all the contacts related to each individual infected patient or each individual infected person um, and found that there was one single patient, patient number 31, who was uh, responsible for spreading the virus in such a way that it was at the root of the one single biggest cluster around one of the churches in South Korea. So that one decision to go to church that one day and then eat at a hotel buffet later uh, became the thing that was the kind of index patient or index case for a whole entire cluster of other people getting sick. And I don't think I don't think that any of that information or that story of patient 31 should be used to point fingers at or try to accuse someone of spreading a disease. I think that's really important as we think about contact tracing and kind of what these index cases look like. I think it's really important to remember that most people are probably doing this not out of any kind of malice, but out of just not realizing that what impact they're having. And so those kind of stories and numbers that as you scroll down that page on the Reuters page and you see this case cluster of individual people all clustered together, get bigger and bigger and bigger and fill your entire browser. You can't help but see that visualization and think, wow, 
Like there really are ripple effects to the choices each of us are making right now. I th that that point about the the individual case and that contact tracing and and how that told a more um, complex and nuanced story is is really really important and really interesting. You you also in in your writing about this talked about the the importance of uh, uh, that people want to use comparisons to other diseases as a way to put to give context for COVID nineteen or the comparisons across countries as being important for giving a context for COVID-19. Can you talk a little bit about why that can be such a complex and, and uh, maybe a, a comparison that one should do with caution? So let's go ahead and unpack those two things a little bit differently. One around, one around diseases, I think, and one around country comparisons and populations, right? So uh, yes, one of the infographics that we saw go really viral and really uh, adopted and shared widely was the comparison that looked at the total deaths per day for different diseases, things like malaria, TB, things endemic in different countries and around the world at this point compared to COVID-19. And when you have such an early stage epidemic, trying to compare some kind of daily deaths count per day is functionally meaningless and might really understate the severity or the impact that this disease could have. And so my nervousness is actually even less with the math and more with what someone who doesn't understand that complexity might see in the graphic. So when you see COVID-19 down there called out at the very bottom, so small relative to TB and malaria and other things that we don't feel like we're shutting down our society on on a day-to-day -day basis, um, it might cause you to think that it doesn't matter if you take some of the public health actions that are being recommended. And instead, we have to think about all the other parts of that disease, the health systems we have that help to treat and manage those diseases, the, the treatments, the vaccines, the knowledge that we have about the virus or the bacteria that causes these different diseases. All of those things influence um, what that fatality might, the fatalities might look like or the deaths might look like. And so as I look at charts and graphs, I think about, like, to your point, I think that we talked about earlier, how would someone who's not as ingrained in the data and public health space actually see this information and what would it cause them to do? So um, making those kind of comparisons, I think, between diseases is really challenging when we have such limited data and information right now. And there's a lag in terms of the deaths, right? Um, someone's going to have to go through a, a sequence of steps in care before they die from COVID-19. So we, it's a lagging indicator for us when it comes to how we look at this epidemic. Um, I think your second question about how do we go ahead and benchmark countries against each other or not uh, is important because it speaks to the complexity of health systems. As we look at the data that comes out from different countries, one of the best trackers I've seen about uh, comparing countries against each other is John Burns Murdoch's daily charts that he's doing from the Financial Times, which uh, thankfully actually are all removed from the paywall at this point, which makes me really happy. I really appreciate the, the ways in which different media outlets are making content more accessible. What John does really well is that he goes ahead and he plots new points for the new cases and now the new deaths per day uh, for different countries and looks at their trajectory. He normalizes where they are in the epidemic by normalizing them against the uh, days since the 100th case so that we're not comparing China where their epidemic started so much earlier to the US where we're starting later. And we can better look at what trajectories we're on. But I think most importantly is he adds an annotation layer 
to the actual charts and graphs themselves that helps you understand what actions were taken in different countries. And those text annotations that he updates and he, he looks for feedback on and takes input on help people make sense of what that data means. Why is it that South Korea kind of flattened out? What does it mean yeah. when the U.S. is spiking up higher? And at what point do we need to look more granularly than a country? The U.S. is a broad and diverse country, and we really have to start looking at what's happening in our individual states and cities to get a better perspective on what's happening within this epidemic. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Excella Senior Data Visualization Lead, Amanda McCulloch. Amanda, you wrote about how visualizations can impact and in fact encourage social responsibility. Can you describe an example or two of this with COVID-19? So one of the most impactful visualizations from COVID-19 seems to be around flattening the curve and this idea of how do we go ahead and slow the spread of disease so that we don't overwhelm our health system capacity. Um, that looks like moving a very high spike on a curve to something that happens over a longer period, but is slower to emerge. Uh, and while I saw a lot of different static graphs and charts that were trying to make sense of and communicate that idea, most of which were really information graphics that were based in uh, kind of a qualitative idea, not quantitative data, which I think is important. It was plotting an idea. Uh, the one that really took off and I saw get reshared by people of all different backgrounds and all different areas of expertise was Harry Stevens's Washington Post animated explainer about how COVID-19 spreads and why flattening the curve is so important and why social distancing is so important. Uh, instead of going ahead and trying to communicate something in a static graphic or a quick kind of flip back and forth animated GIF, you can see that he actually walks through the stages of showing us what happens in an, a simulated town and how many different people could get infected based on these little moving bubbles on a screen of little moving dots and plots the curve depending on different actions taken and different social distancing done to show how our individual actions can help flatten that curve out. And as I understand it, it is the most viewed piece of uh, journalism on the Washington Post website of all time, which should say something about the ways in which data visualization, even conceptual visualizations, are making concepts and ideas more accessible to people and helping them understand the role that they play in helping to slow the spread and flatten the curve for COVID-19. How hard is it to do those kinds of visualizations, those moving graphics that are so stunning? I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about, and it was amazing to watch it. How long does it take? What goes into that? How many resources do you need? And what we need more of that. <laughs> so I think that that's a, a challenging question because it depends on the scope of the project, right? Uh, I think that one of the, the great opportunities we have is that there are so many open source libraries and platforms that enable us to do more animations. I mean, even platforms like Tableau have released animation features that allow you to see how dots and how marks move in space. And so some of those newer products are making this animation feature more accessible to non-coders. I think to develop a lot of the really stunning animated graphics and visualizations we see on say like the New York Times in their recent uh, visualization around how COVID-19 spread 
or with the explainer that was produced by Harry, I think that you have to have a more in-depth knowledge and a stronger background in more of the code-based data visualization platforms using tools like D3 and other platforms to build those kind of concepts. But the thing I would reinforce is it's not just about knowing how to use the technology. It's about consulting with experts in the field and in the space. It's about the person who has that knowledge about how to create that stunning animated visualization partnering their expertise with some public health experts who understand kind of what those key messages are that we need to get out. And the more that we find ways to collaborate across our different fields and different sectors, I think the more we can make sure that we make information accessible and available through visualization to a broad range of people and audiences. Oh, amen. That's I, I love the call for this kind of collaborative teamwork. You know, I'd, I'd like to follow up on one of the things that you mentioned in your uh, in your your blog post on on small design choices can how much they can impact and how you interpret a visualization and I, I thought that was that was really cool and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about some of the some, with some examples of that so I think the challenge that we face as data viz developers is that there are so many tools and products that promise to make choices for us nowadays there's show me features and recommend recommendation engines and things but those small design choices are really what change how someone sees the information we present. So I think the, the simplest and most kind of uh, biggest example I've seen with COVID-19 is a real overuse of the color red. I really, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> it's the color red. It's the color red representing cases and the ways in which we see red and immediately it causes a sense of something bad happening, panic, fear. Now, I'm not saying that cases of COVID-19 are good, but the way that we interact with and see information is really important because when we see a lot of red and we see big red bubbles on a graph, on a map that look almost like targets, I mean, that just creates a certain visceral response within us that, that maybe isn't the healthiest for being able to objectively interact with and view a visualization. So I think one of the examples I called out in the article was on maps, for example, looking at using a red palette versus a blue palette on a map and how we're able to focus our attention differently when we're not distracted by this blood red color that's glaring out at us on the map. I think we also have to think about accessibility, right? Using reds and greens together that don't have enough contrast can make it, it challenging for someone who is colorblind to actually see what we're showing in our charts and graphs. Um, and I think that using really purposeful text, and I keep coming back to this, is so important. There are many people who maybe don't quite understand how to read a chart or graph, but they're going to read the words that you use there. They're going to use the read the words you use around it. So be specific in the kinds of information you present, the, the text that you wrap around it, and add explaining context and detail. Like there's a great set of responsible charts and graphs from Data Wrapper um, out of Germany uh, that is doing a great job of taking a lot of the information out there and creating very usable, intuitive charts and graphs about this epidemic or this pandemic. Um, and one of the things they do really well is they actually have a reference line on their trend charts that shows back in February when China changed their definition of a confirmed case. So it's easy on that line chart or an area chart that you see suddenly in mid-February the spike in new confirmed cases. That would look alarming, right, for anyone looking at a chart or graph of new disease uh, new disease cases that are emerging. But when you then see this reference line that said China's changed how they count cases, 
that gives you some context because when you then go, you say, oh, hi, okay, something changed here. I might not know the details from this reference line, but now I know what to go look for and I can go find more information and I can be a good consumer of this, this chart and go say, well, what changed? And what changed was they started counting both laboratory confirmed and clinically diagnosed cases. So now you're including a lot more cases than you had before. And so that explains that spike. So I think it, the, the, the uh, onus is on us as visualization designers to look at what we're plotting, look at the, the anomalies or the things that might look uh, scary to somebody in this context, and go probe and find out if there's a reason why something happened, and then make that information that we find also more accessible to others through our charts and graphs. Amanda, when you look at, when you're reading, just being a news consumer, I know one of the things I'm always doing as somebody who's been a journalist and has taught journalism for many years, I'm always asking students and thinking, what's missing from this article? What, what aren't they asking? When you look at news, are you, do you think like a data designer, you're looking at how could this story be improved by data? And also more generally, what aren't journalists, what could journalists be doing better right now? So there's such a, a myopic focus, I feel like, and maybe it's just in what gets shared and amplified on counting cases and such a narrow focus on counting cases and how many cases and what new cases. And watching that happen is challenging because A, there's so much uncertainty in that data and nuance as we talked about, but B, as a general consumer of information in the public, what am I going to do that's materially different when I see that there's five new cases yesterday in a given state or a given city? What am I materially going to do that's different about my behavior based on that number and that information? And it makes me wonder what other information and stories could we be amplifying further in terms of um, what is happening right now, who is being impacted, how we support each other. I'd love to see more amplification of that. I'd love to see more reporting of ranges instead of rates. When we report information uh, like case fatality rates or other, other data that have a lot of complexity and uncertain denominators right now, when we report those as individual points or we report them and plot them on a bar chart or a lollipop chart against each other, we're assigning a certain amount of certainty to that data. And we need to be better at reporting that kind of information that has uncertainty as ranges. And so I really appreciate when I've seen some of the shifts that some of the news outlets have made, like a recent um, infographic from Vox actually had case fatality rates for different countries as ranges instead of as individual points. And I've really appreciated where I've seen pivots from journalists where they've gotten feedback and they've started actually shifting how they're framing or reporting information. Because the more that we plot points on a graph or a chart, the more we assign a certain amount of certainty to that being the number. And we create expectations from people about that number staying the same, when in all actuality, that number is going to change with time. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm curious, what, what would you do to recommend, what would you recommend students do if they wanted to follow your, your career path, like to, go, to go into this kind of visualization and, we and need public to point, health? We need to point you know, out, I, John, that she came we, from Miami University too. <laughs> I, did you not? I was just about to right, throw that as a good. softball, Richard. This was, you know, well, geez, thanks, sometimes man. Sometimes you forget stuff, Sometimes you're stealing my thunder John. here, pal. 
you know, oh, you're killing me, Richard. And we're not even in the same studio. So, you know, yeah, yes, we know you went to an outstanding undergraduate institution, Amanda. So, and you are welcome to, to shout that out. But also just the idea of getting involved and in doing this kind of visualization on important problems. What kind of things might you recommend to the next generation of professionals that would be joining you in this path? I think it's a different world now than it was when I started out. When I started out, it was um, an accidental career almost. Uh, nowadays, it sounds like you guys are actually teaching this at Miami, which makes brings my heart much joy. Uh, so I think critical to being able to work in data visualization is mastering skills from a few different disciplines. If this is what you want to do as a career path, uh, I think you have to uh, understand the stats and the math, obviously, so that you're representing information accurately. You have to learn how to interact with and use and analyze large data sets and be able to both scrape them, find them, shape them. You don't have to be a data engineer. I think that you don't have to be a specialist in everything, but you should be conversant in what's required to get data into a normalized table that you can use for analysis purposes. Um, and I think you have to learn some fundamental principles from the UX and graphic design fields. Uh, functionally, you're trying to take tables of information and transform them into some kind of visual story that someone who is maybe less uh, numerate or data savvy can interact with and understand and glean information from. Um, I think, though, that there are so many divergent careers that involve data visualization, right? You can become a, very, a data journalist who works in a newsroom. You can become someone who builds business intelligence tools that help Fortune 100 companies make decisions about where they allocate resources. You can do what I did and find a, a career path in the social sector where I went on to get a master's degree in public health after finishing my undergrad. A shout out to the zoology and associate who prepared me well to go into public health where I brought together that biology stuff along with all of the thinking about um, society and demographics and everything else. But I went ahead and focused on a specific domain of expertise. And where I think I've really enjoyed doing my work the most is where I've been able to say, you know, I understand you as public health people and what you're trying to do and what your goals are and what your methods are and what your programs look like and what indicators you care about. I understand those things because I have that subject matter expertise. And I've also worked to master a lot of the knowledge around data visualization best practices and how we how we visualize and communicate that data. So it makes it into something that's a personal passion for me, that I can help to take some of that great knowledge that we're learning from evaluations of public health programs and from the bigger data sets that are out there and finding ways to communicate that in more accessible ways than what I saw when I first started my career. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for, for this episode of Stats and Stories. Amanda, you have been an outstanding and delightful guest. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter. Check out the handles at Stats and Stories, at John underscore Baylor, and at R-O-M-P-E-N-N-I. Or you can follow us on Apple Podcasts or other places where you find podcasts. To share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.